Well, good morning, Applewood family. Those of you who are guests with us this morning, we're glad that you're here. Um, If you feel a bit like you're sitting on an airplane with not much (laughs) clearance for your legs in front of you, I'm going to take the blame for that. We had severe weather shelter on Friday night, and, and usually the thought crosses my mind, oh, I should probably go check the chairs. I did not. The thought did not cross my mind. Fell through one of, thank you, one of those many holes that grow in my brain by the day, it seems. So, I read one of those stories this week that just made me go, wow. Last year, the BBC reported that a Florida priest, maybe you read this story, it was news to me, a Florida priest who was murdered in 2016... This is the way they phrased it, appealed from beyond the grave for his alleged killer to be shown mercy. Familiar to any of you? In a letter that he had written 22 years before his murder, Father Robert requested that if anyone should take his life someday, that person should be spared execution Quote, no matter how heinous their crime or how much I may have suffered. End of quote. Well, he was 71 years old when his body was found riddled with bullets in Georgia in April of 2016. Authorities say that he was killed by a man named Stephen Murray, whom he had been trying to help for months and months. Mr. Murray, a repeat offender, had asked the priest for a ride to somewhere, then abducted him and murdered him. So at the time of the trial, you can imagine, the prosecutor was pushing for the death penalty. But back in 1995, the priest had signed a Declaration of Life document, which was witnessed and notarized by a lawyer, The priest had written, I request that the person found guilty of homicide for my killing not be subject to or put in jeopardy of the death penalty under any circumstances. You see, Father Robert had devoted his life to helping society's most troubled people, including convicts and folks who struggled with mental, emotional disorders. So, he suspected the possibility. The Archbishop of the Diocese said he was well aware of the potential violence that might involve his ministry. But nonetheless, he cared for those people throughout his entire ministry life. Did I mention that story makes me go, wow? Ah, my goodness. How does it make you feel? You don't have to say, just... A moment of self-reflection. Whoa! What does that do to your insides when you hear that? I, I read something like that and I realize I have so far to go in my understanding of grace and forgiveness. You know, for sure I can tell you theologically about grace and forgiveness. But man, when it comes to my own heart, I'm just not sure that I want that murder to, to, to experience grace. Yet I certainly welcome it, welcome it uh, for myself 
How about, how about all of you? Can you relate? So here we are, one week after the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Two days before that, Good Friday, we heard his request from the cross that, that the Father forgive those who put him there. And then last Sunday, he busted out of that grave. We celebrated what uh, proved to be the evidence or the finished work of his forgiveness. Forgiveness for sin was possible for sin-filled humanity. The outrageous, reckless, never-ending love of God could be experienced through forgiveness toward even the vilest of people. And so I have found myself wondering this week, perhaps you have as well, how has that reality impacted my life? Has anything changed? How about you? Anything changed? Is it, has it caused you to think again about your life as a follower of Jesus? Has the fact that he, that he died and, and, and rose from the grave for you and for me, giving us victory over sin and ultimately over death, has that sunk in and, and moved us at all toward a selfless life, a life of living for his glory versus living for our own. And because we know well, or should, that is the point of outrageous forgiveness made possible through Christ. We who have been outrageously forgiven are called to take the good news of that to those who who have yet to hear of God's outrageous forgiveness. That's all of humanity. And so some of my favorite stories in Scripture are those that, that demonstrate the transformation that Jesus' forgiveness brings to a person's life. Because that is indeed what Jesus does. He, he forgives and he brings change. His love and sacrifice provide forgiveness. And when forgiveness is understood, I think it's going to bring about change. And change won't happen at the same pace for everyone. But as the Spirit begins to to bring clarity to our minds and we begin to understand what it is that he has done, life begins to move more toward living for God's glory than living for our own. Peter, the Apostle Peter, he's at the top of my favorites list. I have thought of him often. And, uh, and especially this week, as, as I have been putting this sermon together, you remember on Good Friday night, he and the rest of the disciples scattered. The heat was on, and <clears throat> they took off. Peter stuck around the longest, stayed with Jesus, you recall, from a distance. But when he realized that being identified with Jesus might cost him his life, in, in what was just a, a sudden turn of dishonesty and curses, he denied Jesus. Three times. Gone. And then last Sunday, resurrection morning, where did we find the disciples? Oh, that's right. We didn't find them. They were hiding, huddled in fear somewhere. The women, who were bold enough to go looking, found the tomb empty. Don't take too much pride in that, ladies. (laughs) 
They are the ones, though, that heard that message. Go tell his disciples and Peter. And so they took that message to the men, and, and even then there was, there was disbelief. Now, John's gospel records for us that Mary Magdalene went running with the news to Peter and John. And when they heard the news, they, they took off towards the tomb. John got there first and just kind of peeked inside. Peter, in usual Peter style, went storming past him right on into the tomb. What must Peter have thought? The last that he had seen Jesus was the night that he had denied even knowing him. What was going on in his heart? What was he thinking? John doesn't tell us. He simply says that Peter and John then went back to their homes. And John records that after Jesus appeared to his disciples uh, two different times, but he, he never mentions Peter in the gatherings. Peter may have been there. He may not have been there. We, we don't know for sure where Peter was. And then comes the third appearance. So let me just remind you, and then we're going to read the last half of the story From the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 21, we are told that after Jesus had appeared again to his disciples, um, Peter, at one point, said, I'm going fishing. I'm going out to fish. Maybe he's thinking, I'm going back to what I know. Is this other stuff? I have blown it. I'm going out to fish. We'll go with you, said a couple of others. So they went out, got into the boat, fished all night, caught nothing. Do you sense a setup once again? This happened early on in their ministry life of following Jesus. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. And he called out to them, friends, have you any fish? No, they answered. He said, well, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. I think lights went on. And when they did, they were unable to haul the net in because the number of fish was so great. And then the disciple whom Jesus loved, that's John's way of referring to himself without saying his name. The disciple whom Jesus loved, as if he didn't love the others, said to Peter, it is the Lord. And as soon as Simon Peter heard him say, it is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him to jump in the water. For he had taken it off and jumped into the water. Obviously, his brain was muddled. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. And so Jesus meets them there on the shore and they eat together. John says this was how the third, this was now the third time that Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So I want to invite you to stand and let's read our text for this morning that follows that first part of the story together. When they had finished eating, 
Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who's going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. My sisters and brothers, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Kind of like that P.S. at the end. John is saying, yes, this really happened. I'm not kidding. (laughs) Peter... Do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Rachel, can we put that next slide up? Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Three times they've gone for a walk. And this is the conversation. So I want you to turn to somebody and ask them, what is this conversation about? See what they think. All right, let me interrupt. And sometimes it's harder to interrupt than others. I can only hope that you're talking about the question. It's buzzing. What do you think? What's, what's the conversation about? Oh, interesting opportunity to recant, perhaps. Yeah. What was he thinking? Yes. Good, I like that too. Good stuff. What else? It's interesting that there's, there's, a, there's a threesome there. Three denials. Three statements of, do you love me? Isn't that fabulous? Wow. Exactly. Going to talk about that. <laughs> I'll follow you even if it means I have to die. Yes, yes. A call to new life. A call to be the rock, Sharice. 
Yes, still worthy to serve. Such good observations. I, this story, I, you know, I, <clears throat> I, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but it's so important for us to, to at least give ourselves a little time when we're reading a familiar story to try to imagine ourselves in the shoes or in the, in the skin of the different characters in the story. We don't really know what Peter was feeling emotionally, but frankly, I think he was a wreck. I really do. I think he was a tortured wreck. I mean, think of his words and actions that we know well that, that, <clears throat> that lead up to the scene. Um, shortly before Jesus was arrested, Lee mentioned it, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus, even if it means death. Good for you, Peter. His heart was all in at that point. A little while later, standing around the fire that same night while Jesus was before the high priest, when asked if he was one of the disciples, no, no, I'm not. I don't know him. Three times deny Jesus. The heart that was all in is suddenly a heart that is frozen with fear. And then on resurrection morning, running to the tomb... Oh my gosh, there was eagerness, I'm sure. But there must have been a sense of, oh no, if he's not there, if he really has come back to life, that means I'm probably going to have to face him at some point. Peter saw the linen strips lying there as well, John says, as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. And How did he feel at that point? There had to be a mix, I think, of excitement and dread, what am I going to say to Jesus when I see him, if I see him? I think his heart was a mess. And now he jumps out of the boat in our story this morning to get to Jesus. I, I so love this. He desperately wants to be with Jesus. But I, but I think he's just, he's just so stupid stricken emotionally. I, I think Peter had found in Jesus someone who, who truly captured his heart. In his best moments, Peter knows that Jesus was the answer to all of life's unknowns. And in his worst moments, Peter gave his heart away in fear and doubt. And somewhere in between those two opposites is probably where he'd been living most of his life with Jesus. It was a man who loved Jesus. I really think he did. And he was a man who struggled greatly with being a sinful, self-absorbed, unreliable human being. Can I dare to suggest that that's us? <clears throat> Peter. Peter is us. And, and I hope that that's not stretching it. I hope it doesn't strike you as, well, gosh, that's just not very honest hermeneutically. I, I just, it's an application point. I think his wrestling and struggling heart is, is both typical of us and instructive to us. And what I love about this dialogue is that <clears throat> Jesus doesn't say to Peter, Peter, what is your problem? <laughs> What the heck, Peter? I have spent so much time, given so much of myself, sacrificed ultimately for you. 
Do you know what I left behind in heaven? None of that. Gosh. It would have been reasonable, I think. It would have been right for Jesus to to maybe throw a question out like that. But instead, his question is, Peter, do you love me? Glenn Stanton is a staff writer for Focus on the Family. I I like this statement that he makes. He says, we serve a God who created our humanity, weeps at the fall of our humanity, became our humanity, and is redeeming our humanity. Oh my gosh! That is what Jesus has stepped into in this conversation. It is a redemption of Peter. Jesus knows the human heart because he created it and he had one himself. Which part? The first one? Oh, yeah, yeah. We serve a God who created our humanity, weeps at the fall of our humanity, became our humanity, and is redeeming our humanity. Oh, what does that say about our God? And so Jesus knows what's going on with Peter. He knows what goes on with his people. He knows that their hearts are prone to wander, to leave the God that they love, to give themselves to other things that call to their hearts. I think this is a story about the capacity of our heart to love Jesus. This is not a story about performance or consistency. Which, by the way, is how we so often measure success as followers of Jesus. To make this a story about performance or consistency, I think, would be putting the cart before the horse. No, this is a story about the capacity of our human heart to love Jesus in a way that both he deserves and that we want to do. Now, I don't often do a whole lot with, with the, the, the language, but sometimes a text just begs it, and this is one of those. Probably because of the repetition, even I'm smart enough to see that, gosh, maybe there's something to this. <clears throat> what you might not know, and you might know, that in this text there's a distinction, Lee referred to it, between two of the three, four, some people will tell you, five Greek words that refer to love. Jesus asked Peter the first two times, do you love me? And when he asked Peter that, the word that he used for love was agape. And that is the word in the New Testament in the original Greek language that is always used to describe the love of God. It is a perfect love. It is a love that is consistently self-giving and self-sacrificing. It is always that way. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with godly love? Second time, same thing. Peter responds to Jesus, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. The third time that Jesus asks the question, 
he changes the word love to fit Peter's response. Because the first two times, Peter, do you love me with a godly love, with an agape love? Self-sacrificing, self-giving consistently that way. Peter says, Lord, you know that I love you with another Greek word called phileo. And that's the word that refers to friendship. It's a word that refers to family love. It's a word that implies great affection. Peter, do you love me with godly love? Yes, Lord, you know that I have great affection for you. The third time, Jesus says, Peter, do you have great affection for me? Do you love me as a member of the family, as as a brother? Peter says, yes, yes, Lord, I do love you in that way. John tells us that Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him three times, but I think it was Jesus' way of getting Peter to be honest about his heart. It was, it was a way for Peter to, to, to face who he was, to face his inconsistent heart's love, to face the truth about, I've got a heart that Jesus, there are moments when I am ready to die for you, and there are a heck of a lot of moments when I just don't get it. And everything else in this world calls to my heart. I think Jesus was throwing out the gauntlet to test Peter's heart. Let's get honest here, Peter, about who you are and how it is that you love me. (laughs) And then, I think, in essence, Jesus then said, well, good, I'll take that. We can work with that. Now get busy. Get out of this funk. Quit sulking. Quit thinking that you should be better than who you are because you are who you are and we'll work with this. Peter was conflicted. I, knowing Peter, I think he wanted to boast of a greater love, but he knew himself too well. And Jesus just let him walk down that path and once he was honest about his weak and wandering heart, Jesus met him at that place. Gosh, there's a lesson for us. Brothers and sisters, we need to be honest about what it is in our hearts and, and, and Jesus and his willingness to, to meet us where we are. I think many times there is discouragement in, in the life of a believer because they just aren't who they should be. According to whom? My standards? Lee's standards? My wife's standards? Or according to Jesus and his desire to take our willing hearts where they're at and grow us into someone that we could never be on our own? I think that's the vision that Jesus had for Peter. I think that's the vision that Jesus has for all of us. Jesus did not let Peter's honest expression stop him. In fact, it it unleashed the possibilities. It was the incredible love of Jesus, I think, that, that pulled Peter out of a dark place. 
back into a vital relationship. Jesus had never quit loving Peter. Can't you imagine that that was a part of what was going on in his head in those days before being with him? What's he going to say? What am I going to say? What am I going to do if he doesn't say anything and just, just leaves me and walks away from me? Jesus knew who Peter was. He knew his strengths. He knew his weaknesses. And Jesus loved Peter right where he was. (laughs) And even after the most significant conversation, probably of his life, Jesus then unloads the truth about the way that Peter's going to die, and Peter notices that John has been following them. I'm guessing probably listening to the conversation. Maybe that's how we know what this conversation was about because John wrote the gospel years later. Well, what about him? There's the old Peter that we know. (laughs) Didn't take long to come back to that form, did it? But Jesus' response is, what is that to you? His response, in essence, was, Peter, this is about you and me. This This is not about my relationship with John. Anyone else? Peter, this is about you and me. My brothers and sisters, I think that this this is a call to us to be honest with Jesus about our hearts. You know, this is, we're coming into Pentecost season in a few weeks. And so what I want to do is is I want to spend just a few Sundays, maybe three or four Sundays, looking at Peter in Acts the man that he became as a result of the Spirit of God filling his life. But, I don't want you to forget this. And this may be heresy, but I don't think so. I want to suggest to you that it was the redeeming love of Jesus on the shore of the Lake of Galilee that day that was the starting point for transformation of Peter from coward and failure to fearless and confident in the book of Acts. Absolutely, the Spirit of God filled his life. But apart from being accepted and loved by Jesus in all of our imperfections and weaknesses and failures, presence of the Holy Spirit isn't going to mean much to us. We come face to face with God's redeeming Love for us in His Son. The Spirit of God comes upon those who respond in faith to the truth of what the Gospels teach that God demonstrated His love for lost and broken people in the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus. Jesus didn't come for good people, He didn't come for people with potential. He came for those who were broken and separated by sin from God. Those who were out of the relationship for which they had been created. There aren't good people, according to Scripture. Romans tells us that all have sinned and all fall short of God's standard. God loves us when we don't love Him. And he loves us when our love falls far short of his love for us. 
Jesus was willing to take Peter where he was at. But he was intent on not leaving him there. And that is the same for us. As we walk into these weeks of of looking at the work of God's Spirit in the life of Peter following Pentecost, there might be a temptation, certainly for me, you may experience it as well, oh man, I need to be doing great things for God. No, no you don't. You need to be loving God with all of your heart. I need to be loving God with all of my heart because truth be told, my desire to do great things for God really isn't about God. I need to do great things for God. I need. Gee, I wonder who that's about. What we need to do is we need to be honest about our wandering hearts. We need to be honest about where Jesus wants to meet us at the point of our perhaps greatest failure. Disregarding all of the stuff that others may say and listening to what Jesus has to say. I will love you and meet you where you are and we'll begin to go from there together. Jesus takes us where we are at. And then through the power of the Spirit indwells those who put their faith in him and makes them into someone that they have not been. Their own unique someone, not like someone else. Them to be like Jesus. Life after the resurrection is a new life. It is a life of living for Jesus, starting with the honest expression of Jesus, my love for you is not what I want it to be. But here it is, such as it is. Now, now have your way with me, Lord Jesus. Praise team, come on up and prepare to to lead us in response. And I want to read just a, a quick story for you. An author and researcher by the name of Brene Brown is referred to in a book whose author's name I cannot remember. There's a couple of them. It's called A Theology for Sinners. Anyway, they, <clears throat> they reference this story. <clears throat> Excuse me. She, um, she talks about coming back to church after years away and the precise moment in her mind when she writes, the whole Jesus thing finally clicked. She says, you know, people would want love to be unicorns and rainbows. So then you send Jesus and people say, oh my God, love is hard. Love is sacrifice. Love is trouble. Love is rebellious. Love isn't hearts and bows. It's very controversial. In order for forgiveness to really happen, something has to die whether it's your expectations of a person or your idea about who you are, there has to be death for forgiveness to happen. In all of these faith communities where forgiveness is easy 
And love is easy. There's not enough blood on the floor to make sense of that. But all of a sudden, it becomes clear why Christians take forgiveness to heart. Because the blood on the floor is Christ's blood. May we rejoice in the sacrifice of our Savior. May we live into the truth that he meets us where we are at. We don't bring perfection to him and we don't let our lack of perfection cause us to live in a funk. We bring who we are and we hear him say, I'll take that and we'll grow that together for my glory, not for yours. Amen.